she said to say there's not a problem with the two hour podcast episodes they're nice uh, to have in the background I, I, listen to. I'm still not sure about that yeah. I think that's just your um, your clients trying to be nice to you maybe yeah. hoping to give them a discount or something <laughs> and take all their money if, well, if I give them a discount you're paying your own fucking gym membership <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you might want to shut the fuck up <laughs> mental This is Straight Talking Mental Health, where we're tackling everyday mental health issues in a straight talking way, as you'll hear from the shite that comes out of our mouth. Uh, My name is Alan Clark. Despite what you're about to hear, I am actually a psychotherapist. I like to call myself the Samuel L. Jackson of psychotherapy because fuck that shit because <laughs> that's why joining me for the first time as proper host in our guest hosting slot is my firstborn male heir cameron clark all right cammy how's it going how's it going dad all right yeah not bad i think we're, we're entering into a very new dimension here i don't think there's uh, anything else out there where a father and son are openly discussing mental health no i think i think we've reached a nice dynamic here yeah, we're kind of tapping into new waters. Let's see if you're Billy Big Balls without uh, without pee around. Normally, the two, need, normally the two fucking two years jump on me. Uh, so let's let's see if uh, if we can still knock the the, the crack and the banter out of just the, just the two of us. Let's I see think if you're just as brave. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I do make it fairly easy. Mm. But you know, you you go for the low hanging fruit, picking on a poor autistic man. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, you're going to use that all the time now. I got me card. You, I got out yeah, of you, you finding out you're autistic is the best thing that's ever happened to you. It's going to make up for your lack of personality in most cases. <laughs> that's why I have a fucking lack of personality. <laughs> that's the problem. No, you just have an excuse for it now. No, that was always that was always a reason. I just didn't have a why for it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so on this week's episode, we are straight talking grief. Something we've touched a lot upon on previous episodes. We always said, "Oh, we'll have to do one on this," and we are going to do one on this. And this week, we are straight talking with Mags Bone. Mags is a former classmate of myself. We did our masters together. And I thought, well, no better woman to to speak on this topic because she has a huge experience in working with that area. So really looking forward to all of the solid information and advice that that Mags has. And, you know, she has a a wealth of information to draw from. Before we get going, we'd like to invite everyone to check out the social media. The Twitter is STR8TalkingPod. And we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. The reason we ask for such a help out on the social media is because social media is a absolute pain in the bollocks so it it really limits who sees your posts so it's very important that people like and share wherever they can um if you want to see if you want everyone to see what you're putting up you have to pay for it and obviously that's just not feasible all the time uh, because we don't make any money off this this is done off the back of our own time and our own expense so we just ask people when you can just if you could just give a little like or a share if you're on itunes you can leave a five star review on the episodes on the podcast if you could do that for us that would be hugely hugely grateful but to get started usually what we do is we have a little bit of a check-in we try and model these conversations around mental health and with ourselves and we do that by checking in and cammy what's been going on with you man not much you know just trying to get get used to getting back into work it's been a long time since i've been back full-time working so it's kind of just adjusting to being busy again i suppose it's been 14 months since i've experienced it and then 
because I work late nights, it's more just trying to figure out how to sleep again. Mm. Obviously, what, with, with tell everyone what to do. I'm a I'm a barman, mm. so I work I work late nights and. Over lockdown, I'd kind of gotten used to going to bed early and being able to wind down. But now when you get home at half 12 or one o'clock in the morning, you can't really fit in time to wind down and then sleep as well. Mm. So it's kind of just been a bit of a task adjusting to that, I suppose. Yeah. So for everyone dining out in, in Cunningham's in Calairtown, be sure to uh, tip your barman. <laughs> Especially your if it's me. Especially if it's Cammy, yeah? you'll, re- you'll yeah. recognise him. He's the handsome one with a very yeah. floppy fringe there at the moment. What's going on with your hair? Does he get another perm, does it? I need a haircut, man. Yeah. Does he get a perm? Do you get another no. one? No. No, you let that die, does it? That's dead. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you don't sleep a lot. No, no, not in general, no. Like, you know, even under normal circumstances, I remember you'd be getting in at two or three and, you know, like a ninja, you know, you barely hear you coming in, and then you're, and then I wouldn't hear you going out. You'd be gone at stupid o'clock then as well. Yeah, no, it's it's been a struggle now for the past couple of years trying to catch up on some sleep, and then with working in the bar, it doesn't make it any easier. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, I think I think I'm doing it so long now, I've kind of just adjusted to yeah. kind of moving around on just low hours of sleep, I suppose. Yeah, but not just a barman. You're also studying. Want to tell everyone about that? I am a journalism student in Clausha Dulig in North Dublin, so I'm heading got into your my, diploma this year. my final year. I did, I got my diploma. Yeah, congratulations. I'm qualified. Well Thanks very much. Yeah. What's the plan moving forward with that then? Uh, there's, I've got one more year, mm. and then let me figure out where to go from there. Hopefully get out of this horrible country. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Yeah. <laughs> You're off to Australia. That's the plan. Yeah, yeah, we've a, we've a listenership down there. Hello to everyone down there below. Ignore the uh, bad accent from myself. <laughs> yeah. So we had uh, we had myself and P and yourself. We introed yourself last week on the episode mm-hmm. on fatherhood. Did you listen back? I did for once. You did for once, you dickhead. <laughs> Should be listening. Of course, I did fatherhood, but don't I no, listen like, every I d- week? I don't listen to my own stuff. I never do. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you, you've known it yourself from. The first podcast I was on with Philip O'Connor and you had been texting me about it mm. and it had been nearly two or three weeks when I finally went back and listened to it. Yeah. So what, what was that? What was that piece about again? That was about my um, sexual abuse piece, which is on my website at CameronClark.wordpress.com. Come on. Where I, I mean, talked about um, sur- sexual abuse survivor stories where people come out and they share their experience and how it, and how it happened to them in a hope that it would make other people feel more comfortable sharing their own experience mm. and that was that's kind of the piece I suppose I'm most proud of mm. and, and the, po- the podcast you were on then as a result of that yeah so Philip had spoke to me about that piece that was and at the same Philip time is- and the, Philip is a journalist based in Sweden in Stockholm mm. and around that time very well respected Philip, journalist very very and Philip covers a lot of topics as well which is why I crossed his mind at that time the Me Too movement had started I suppose trending again and I had shared it so this was six months after I'd written the piece and I'd reshared it just to kind of fit in with the rest of the time that was going about and Philip had reached out to me and asked me to come on and speak about the piece and then I didn't listen back to it for three weeks 
I think I was texting you about it, about yeah. something or something he had said or something he's described it as, and you were kind of like, like what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, because Philip had done an intro about it. I hadn't, he, he didn't do while I was there, so I hadn't listened to it. Yeah, he spoke very highly of you. Yeah, that was great to hear now. Yeah, yeah excellent. So the plan, one more year, and then off to, off to Australia. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, that's... Oh, I got a bit. I got a bit of feedback from a client yesterday. She's a she's an avid listener to the to the podcast, and mm. we all, I always welcome welcome her feedback because she's listened for so long. And she said you did very well. She said your son sounded sounded very well. And oh, she said to say, "There's not a problem with the two hour podcast episodes. They're nice uh, to have I in the I, 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 I'm to. still not sure about that. Yeah. I think that's just your um, your clients trying to be nice to you." Maybe yeah. hoping to give them a discount or something and <laughs> take all their money. <laughs> if, I, if I give them a discount, you're paying your own fucking gym membership. <laughs> so maybe you might want to shut the fuck up. <laughs> maybe you should be telling me to up my prices. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think I'd do that. Then I'd, then I'd have your clients telling me that I'm an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said last week you are yourself. So. Yeah, but I don't want people telling me. It's fine when I do it's it. Sorry, yeah, yeah. It's sorry to I want to call myself. Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, we spoke about uh, fatherhood on last week's episode. Um, what was your takeaway after listening to that episode? I think, well, it's it's something you're you're open about, I think, in general. Mm. So in terms, for me anyway, I don't think it was particularly eye-open because it's stuff I've heard from you kind of my whole life. But I think for people who would struggle maybe talking to their fathers, I think it's particularly insightful just kind of hearing about the difficulties that comes with being a father and even just being a parent in general. Mm. I think it's it's helpful for maybe kids who have had tough relationships with their fathers to listen to something like that and understand maybe why it can be so difficult at times or maybe it could even be insightful to why maybe their relationship with their father isn't great because mm. I know generally when it comes to people having bad relationships with their parents, it would usually be the child and the father because mm. I think a lot more people are generally more attached to our mother just in general. There's a bit more of a bond there, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Mm. So I think it would be helpful for people just to listen to it and maybe understand that it is difficult for fathers because they don't have the maternal bond that a mother would have. Mm. That I think maybe they need to see it from their point of view that it is a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think I think for a lot of fathers as well, perhaps not having the emotional intelligence around it and having the having the language to be able to to perhaps have those conversations with with mm. with their children. Um, you know, I always I always joke that you know I got a I got a do over with James. You know, because mm. I learned so much in the meantime through my own studies and stuff like that. And I addressed it on the on the episode last week of of my own guilt. And I remember having a conversation with you as well of. You know, apologising that I wasn't, I wasn't a better father, and you know that's something that really has has really weighed me down over the years. I must say. Yeah, well, I think especially with with us being men, I think it's kind of a lot harder for men to talk about that. So, in the case where you apologise, I'd imagine a lot of fathers, if they are feeling guilt about something like that, maybe they wouldn't express that guilt to their children mm. as a maybe a pride standpoint, or maybe just wanting to be manly and not express their feelings in that way. So I think it would be important for people to listen just to see that it is okay to talk about stuff like that. And if you're expressing guilt, maybe you're feeling guilty about not being the best parent in the world, that maybe the best thing you can do is to tell your kids that. Mm. And if they're feeling any sort of resentment over how you've been as a father to them, then 
maybe helping them understand could fix the relationship or change it entirely. Yeah. What well, what was it like to have that to have that conversation? Awkward. Or, yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's, it it's was. something like I'm you're a lot more of an open person than I am. I wouldn't mm. be um particularly open to being vulnerable or expressing myself in all that way. So mm. to hear you do it, it's kind of it's a different experience for me. It's not something I'm used to. Mm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you know you're not as open or what's what's the struggle you find with it? I wouldn't even call it a struggle. It's just something I I don't particularly do. Like it's not if if I'm put in a situation where I have to be open, I'm more than capable of doing that. Mm. I just prefer not to be in that situation. I think I'm too much of a lighthearted person to be kind of put into serious conversations like that too often. Yeah. They're difficult, but, you know, usually worthy, you know, when you have them. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing. Like, they're they're not something you'd want to be in too often, but no. when you are put in that situation, <laughs> it's there's generally a reason for it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't just... It's not just something that comes up out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I think I'd had the conversation... Uh, I'd had the conversation with Adina uh, a while beforehand. We we just mm. happened to to be talking about something. Adina is your sister, obviously. <laughs> mm. um, for every everyone that doesn't know, I don't know. It's just something something came out of the conversation, and uh, I know it was something I'd spoken about in in my own therapy a lot. And um, I think the opportunity presented itself in whatever the conversation was that we had. And you know, she was like, "No, she's don't be silly. You know, you're grand and all of this kind of thing." Um, but uh, and I, and I worried, I worried that oh she you know just being nice or she just doesn't want to have the conversation and you know because I think I, I've said to you both like you know if, if there's anything if there is an issue like you know let me know and I'll you know give give me a chance to to, to rectify that you know just to maybe right some of those wrongs and um, because you know I didn't know what I was doing and you know it's funny as I look back now that uh, you know I know you joke around the autism but as I look back through the life experiences through that lens you know you know we had the attic converted and you know the studio up there for the music and stuff like that and you know I would have would have spent a lot of time up there and you know as I look back now that, that was just that me needing that alone time you know after being perhaps overwhelmed and overstimulated and not knowing what I was feeling at the time and um, you know that wasn't conducive then to to always being a present, a present father. Well, I think, I think it's kind of the one, the one quality I didn't take from you, is that you are typically more introverted than I would be. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm far more outgoing. Yeah, and maybe in that case, it kind of makes it a little bit more difficult for you even to talk about that sort of stuff because you're, even though you're more open now, I think that's only due to your career and what you've studied and you've just learned oh, 100%. through 100%. practice to be more open. Yeah. Whereas I might not be as open as you are now, but in a more typical sense, say 10 years ago, I would have been. Mm. Do you think you played, you played a lot of basketball. Do, do you think, do you think a lot of those friendships stemmed from team sport or? Yeah, well, I've been playing team sports my whole life. So mm. I think just, I've always been around the lads mm. in a way. So it's kind of, it's kind of made me an extrovert, if, if anything. Yeah. Like, if, if not by choice, just by the people I'm around. Mm. But, like, in saying that, I do. I enjoy my alone time, and I think it's, it's important for everyone to get it. Yeah. But um, I do also think it's important to be social with everyone, and 
at least try to have conversations with people and get out of your comfort zone the odd time. I know, I know. I joked about it, or you joked about it last week, but but I I felt, or I would have definitely seen a, a, a significant change in you once you started working in the pub. You yeah, know, as well, you say, you're, in, you're forced into that position. That's it. In in that in that scenario, I'm I'm forced into a job where I have to be social. I can't. Yeah. I can't just go and work in the pub and not speak to anybody. Mm. I, I, I'm forced to speak to people, which I don't mind. I I enjoy being social. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy learning kind of a, what I do in the pub and hearing from people. Mm. But yeah, in that I was kind of pushed into that scenario just because of the, the job I do. Mm. I've, I'm enjoying I've enjoy, I'm enjoying this chat. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's a good experience for us to have, have the conversation. But as I said, under normal circumstances, probably wouldn't be had. It'll no. probably be, uh, oh, did you see what film is coming out? Did you see what's due out? <laughs> oh, when, when's the last of us out? <laughs> you know, what video game is coming out? Or yeah. what, what's what's the um, what's the release date for the HBO series on the last of us? Like, mm. <laughs> they're, and they're look, they're they're the typical conversations you have. So, you know, I think mm. it's nice, and and you know, I'd be interested for for people listening in, you know, parents or children of parents, which we all are, to you know, maybe maybe let us know what what it's like to, to hear this um, because obviously we always we always welcome your feedback and we're always welcome your stories many of the guests we have on are people that have just emailed us in said they'd be interested in coming on that they've got a they've got a story to tell and you know we we love hearing that uh, like we had with Fraser a couple of weeks ago uh, Arlene recently you know we don't always just have a guest on talking about a particular topic you know, we want to we want to hear your stories, and if you want to do that, you can check us out. Head to the head to the website stmhpodcast.com, or you can email us at hello at stmhpodcast.com. I told you we're on all the social media. Slide into the DMs, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on Facebook. Um, do whatever you need to do. Fucking carry your pigeon if if that works for you. Morse code, however, you know whatever whatever you want to do. That's that's all right with us. So before we get going with mags later on. We're going to be talking about uh, grief. Touching on that, what what's been your experience around around grief, Cameron? I think when people typ- typically think of grief, to think of death, to think of losing a person, uh, you've experienced that or other other forms of grief. What's that's what's the experience been like for you? Yeah, I, I've definitely experienced it, and I think I'm I'm kind of on the worst side of it, is where I kind of bottled it in. So two years yeah, ago, my yeah. my friend took his own life, and. Even to this day, I haven't properly talked about it with anybody, so I'd be mm-hmm. on kind of the, I suppose, the bad side of it and just not speaking to anybody about it. And that's just something I've had to deal with, but like I said earlier, it's not something I like to talk about. Mm. But I think... Why do you think it you, happened? It's just an uncomfortable situation for me. Yeah. Um, Like I could talk about it with, with friends of my friend, I'd be comfortable speaking about it with them because they knew him. But for those that don't, I just I don't think it's a conversation I need to have personally. Mm. I I suggested you at the time, you know, you go and talk to someone. You you didn't want to. No, no, I never, mm. I never went through with it. It's just, it wasn't, it wasn't eating away at me. It wasn't mm. like I, I don't look at death in that way. And in the point that it's just kind of the be all end all. Like if someone dies, you have to feel remorseful for them and all it's obviously okay to feel sad but I don't think it's something that needs to change your life entirely mm. and that's kind of how I felt we're talking about it as well it's not something that's going to eat away at me 
Yeah. How did you feel when you found that out? Obviously, you know, I've I've my own experiences of friends' suicides growing up in the years. Unfortunately, it's such a massive problem, young male suicide, and um, 8 out of 10 suicides in Ireland are, are men. Um, what was the experience like for you? Well, I was in work when I found out. Mm. Um, I got a phone call from my friend's sister, and she was screaming, crying, and she had mentioned it to me on the phone. I just I had to leave work, and I didn't want to leave work at first because I was kind of just trying to push it out. And then yeah. my manager had said to me, "Okay, look, you need you need to go home." Mm. And I did. I went home, and I went home, and I saw them. And I think it was definitely the right decision to do, because I think I would have been eaten with guilt if I had continued my shift that night and then maybe didn't see them until the next morning mm. but um, it's tough like it particularly with suicide it's a shocking thing to hear yeah. because I'd known that my friend had struggled but I didn't think it was that to that extent and I'd never even considered the thought of him taking his own life so more than anything I think it was just shocking to me just to hear it Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know my own experience, and you know, in school, you know, classmates, uh, good friend Corky recorded the song about when it was rapping and stuff like that. The thing that uh, I think, the thing that myself and a lot of uh, a lot of people, I think, experience with with grief is that belief that it's very selfish. You know, yeah, don't. how could they do that? How could the you know we're all left with this pain and. Um, and and I you know I hold my hand up I I held that belief for for many many years until, you know I started working with clients that had attempted suicide and you know for for some of them they, they genuinely believed that, the people would be better off without them, that they were a burden that, you know they had nothing to give you know the guilt that they felt over things or anything like that, I think that was that's a that was a bit of an eye opener for me to to hear that. I think it's one of the, the harder things to struggle because it's obviously hard when somebody passes away, whether it mm. be due to old age or mm. a heart attack mm. or something along those lines. But when it's suicide, there is an extra layer on top of that because you're trying to understand why they did it. And then there's anger because, like you said, you feel like selfishness comes into play. Well, why why did they why did they leave me? Why did they yeah. take themselves out, out of my life? Yeah. But I think as hard as it is for us to understand why they did it, it's a lot harder for them because they had felt so poorly about themselves that they felt that this was the only solution to their issue. Mm. And it obviously, it never is. Yeah. But they, they can't see past that. And what makes it worse is that, especially if you didn't know, they probably felt that they, it, they probably felt so poorly about themselves they couldn't even speak about it to their own friends or their family. Mm-hmm. So you have to imagine that whatever we're experiencing they felt it a lot harder than we did. Yeah, and something, you know, something I deal with a lot, you know, that's in particularly teenagers that I work with that maybe that maybe feeling suicidal. You know, it's that belief that people wouldn't miss them or, you know, that uh, people would be better off and, you know, I I tell them, you know, for the young people I say like I can tell you as a parent, you know, you will be missed. You are wanted. You know, you mm-hmm. don't, you know, no parent wants to see you going through that, going through that suffering. Um, we do have an episode on suicide. Uh, you know, you can check that out on any of, the, any of the podcast providers. It is a weighty topic, obviously, but, you know, as we do, we, we try to we try to discuss it in uh, as best we can. And 
sometimes that's that's done with humor and some of the ways that we can convey some of that humor that we have as we have our smiles and riles of the week your first proper smiles and riles did you prepare any or did you forget no i'm more i'm more of a, a winger you're a winger all right freestyler um, yeah i forgot yeah I yeah that, i yeah. prefer to it that way um <laughs> See, I, I, I tell myself to do that. Peter used to slag me because I'd, I'd take the notes on my phone during the week. Oh, I must mm. remember this for the podcast. And then I tried it for a week or a few weeks and I was like, oh, I'll have to, have to stick this down for the podcast. Oh, sure, I won't forget this. Or this is so significant. And then you go, now, any smiles or riles? And I'd be like, uh. <laughs> so I, I need to leave the notes because I'm just so fucking busy and I forget shit. And I'm older. <laughs> You've got that young brain. So yeah. What's got your smile and what's got your riling? Well, I think my smiles and my riles are kind of, they're almost the same. Yeah. This week, so obviously my smiles are that I'm, I'm back to work. I have something to keep me occupied again. And How's the tips? People, people tipping are they being good? Yeah, yeah. Don't people are being nice to us. And good, then my riles are the people that aren't being nice to us. <laughs> so in, what, in what way? There's, so the people that get a table and who are able to come in and dine with us, whatever, they're they're thrilled. They're very, very happy to see us. Almost, almost as happy as we are to be back. mm and they're very kind of us, they're very polite. But then you have the people that, that don't manage to get a table and they're kind and of on the opposite of side of it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's 100% our fault because they yeah. didn't book a table. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when when we opened at Christmas, it was if people couldn't get a table, they were very understanding. I think with it just being Christmas, mm-hmm. that, that's gone. If mm-hmm. they don't get a table now, we're the worst people in the world. No, all right. And um, yeah, no, they, they tend to dislike us for it. Don't be a dickhead. Yeah. That, yeah. that's kind of it you know people are coming back to work you know people are under extraordinary conditions and everyone's trying to facilitate as, as best they can I you know I spoke about my experience when before indoor dining was back in back down south I was up I was up the north and you know I had my experience of indoor dining and servers wearing the fucking mask around their <laughs> chins and mm. uh, you know taking the mask off to talk to while they're taking the order um, and I was like, all right, three-star review. I'm not going to slate <laughs> you completely, but, <laughs> you know, wear your fucking mask when you're talking to me. Yeah. Yeah, particularly when emblazoned at the front door is face masks must be worn. So. Well, that, that's it. Like, we we, clo- we we close because of a pandemic. Yeah. I think the least we can do when we're actually allowed to open again is follow the rules yeah. of that pandemic. But by all means, if you want to see it back continue not to wear your mask and continue not mm. to wash your hands and continue not to social distance and mm. see where that gets us. Yeah, we. I don't think we'll get our indoor dining in two weeks' time if that's the case. You don't think so? No, it's starting to look a little bit more unlikely now. I was talking to my manager about it last night and mm. he says that just the language they're using, it's not looking um, too hopeful for us. Yeah, but what, but, might, but it's, it's it ridiculous, back. like, because at least under those circumstances, it's controlled. You know, yeah. you're there. You have this. You have the table spaced out. You you've everything done to facilitate that. And when that's not there, everyone just goes fucking mental and wrecks Dublin the street, as, as they've yeah. been doing. Like and you seen you seen that young that young lad that tried to roundhouse kick the five drunk lads out in the street to Dublin. What was that's that? what happens. Did you not see it on Twitter? No. There was a bartender who was um was trying to get was getting jumped by five young lads, Shit. and he tried to roundhouse kick one of them. And he is now the love of every Irish girl's life because of this kick. <laughs> I must look that up or send, that, send that down to me. I will. That, that's <laughs> what happens when people can drink on the streets and there's nobody there to, I suppose, govern how they behave. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just chaos. People have been mm. locked down too long. Do it organised, do it properly. And uh, 
let let people have a proper job and let people return to a semblance of normality um, because you know that whole industry has just been decimated mm. and this fucking oh well we'll see oh we'll see you know orders have to be made you know <laughs> pints have to be ordered food has to be mm. ordered for restaurants you can't just fucking leave people sitting with us or mm-hmm. you know we'll see and yeah, we're di- discussing grief, but like, there's also the other side of of grief that like people people do miss being able to go to the pub. Mm. Like it's a, it might not be quite the loss as maybe a debt or whatever, but you know it is it is a big thing to take away from people, especially in this country. Yeah, where it is, it is kind of a, I suppose a cultural hobby, even if you don't drink, <laughs> just to go cultural to the pub to, to see people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go up to the down, down to the pub to watch the match. Yeah, even if you don't drink. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of a... Just for the atmosphere. It's a social space, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Any other smiles or rails? No, I think that's it for me. Um, what about yourself? What about myself? <laughs> I know you're going to slag me for this one. Uh, I've started watching uh, Reeling in the Years. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I fucking knew you were going to say that. I was like, oh my... Like you said, I make I make it too easy for you. Like, yeah. God, oh, you're, really show, you're really showing the age here. Right. Oh, that's an old person show. It was fascinating, like, you know, the music of the year, the events. You know, it's a nice, nice little snippet of. Uh, I I wish I'd reeled in the years when I was in school. It would have been brilliant. Oh, Go in Even there. When you okay. were a young lad, you were a fucking old lad. <laughs> I liked history. I actually got an A one in history in my leaving cert. Okay, or, but whatever that the equivalent make it of that is. Any less boring to bring I'm this far. up? You you should you should have kept this off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm alright Cameron when you get to, when you get to my age you can accept these these pieces of yourself but uh, I love I love Reeling in the Years I think there's few things that RTE have done well and Reeling in the Years is one of them I think Love Hate was another one I think they did that very well as well but I think Reeling in the Years is, is, is a fantastic show whoever's responsible for it I salute you uh, many of the other things on RTE I do not salute you. <laughs> and I resent having to pay a fucking TV license for the privilege of watching one programme. <laughs> Which is a programme you shouldn't be watching. Ah, sweet bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> That's me smile. I knew I, knew yeah, I was going to get slack for that. Um, two things. I had my second vaccine last week. Okay. That I'm sounds done. like a good thing. I'm all jabbed up. Yeah, yeah. I had to reschedule my appointment because I had to bring the mother, aka Bridge, to the hospital on the day I was supposed to get my vaccine. Oh, jeez. So she was going, I had to bring her to the hospital. And, no, I had to collect her from the hospital on Tuesday. Um, and then I get a text on Monday afternoon to say my vaccine is Tuesday afternoon. So they give you one day's notice. Fuck. Yeah. For anyone that's self employed, that's very difficult. Uh, situation to put yourself in um, for any even anyone that's employed but I suppose it's a little bit easier if your employer is willing to give you the give you the time off but mm. I mean one one day's notice is, is just ridiculous like so I rang them up to, to reschedule and um, I said okay so well is there other appointment slots there available um, no I said well what way does this work then oh someone will be you know you'll they'll make contact with you within 21 days I was like well that's just no help at all like um, now they did they did message me back that afternoon and they gave me a bit more notice so notice of uh, the Friday so I had it on I had it on uh, Friday morning 
so I'm all done. No symptoms. Yeah, had vaccinated now. Had had the AstraZeneca. No um no symptoms on any side of it, thankfully. You can't feel the five G coursing through your body. Well, you wanna see the internet signal I'm getting now. Anyone that fucking stands around me, I can I can wirelessly charge your phone <laughs> and I can give you five G. <laughs> Superpowers are already starting yeah, to yeah, kick yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, so that's my royal. So me me my other royal then is related to me to my other smile. So myself and Ashing went up to went up to Dublin on Saturday. We had we got got to stay in a hotel for the first time since lockdown. Um and nice nice to walk around Dublin. The weather was lovely, we got to walk around Stephen's Green. Obviously she's a Nordy, so you know, I had to show her some of the things in, in Dublin. Many of the things in Dublin involve walking past a strong fucking smell of piss. Yeah. My fucking God. The smell of piss in Dublin City is absolutely horrendous. Yeah, don't walk down an alleyway. Don't, the only thing don't walk down a doorway. Yeah. Because it's just a smell of piss. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what is that? I said, well, it's, it's all the homelessness. I said, you know, if you, if you take a proper a proper whiff, you'll get a, a base note of heroin and opium there <laughs> mixed with, what is that? Is that oh, a, a scent of Dutch gold, I think. Um, <laughs> so as much as it was lovely to um, to, to walk around Dublin, not, not so lovely to... Uh, have to experience smell yeah, of taste take, everywhere. You take it's a warm. bit of grain of salt. I don't remember it ever been that bad. Is this? Is this? And you like? Well, everyone's drinking on the streets now, so it's probably a little bit worse. Yeah. You know, they need to go to the toilet somewhere. Well, you know what would help? If pubs and restaurants were open. Yeah, that would help. Yeah, that's well, a great well, point. You, sh- you should maybe say that to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good point. I should. I should have made it more often. <laughs> So this week we're straight talking grief. It's something we've touched on in many, many topics that we've covered in the past. We spoke about it a little bit last week with Fraser when he spoke about breakup and we talked about primary loss, secondary loss. In order to talk about grief, I reached out to the woman that I know, that I think knows the most about it, having worked in that field for such a long, long time. And what better way to be able to get people on than to call in a few favours from people you know. So Mags Bone, how are you doing Mags? Morning, Alan. I'm very, very well, and it's great to talk to you again. Good, yeah. We, do you want to tell people how we know each other then, Mags? Yeah, we met a few years ago now on a master's programme for child and adolescent psychotherapy, mm. and uh, we spent two years in the same classroom, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two and years our, probably given out about the same institution. <laughs> well, we, well, look at it. We, we, uh, we spent two years and we studied and we came out with the master's, and mm. uh, yeah, so that's how we met each other. Nice to have, nice to have a few more letters after the name. Yeah, and you know, an awful lot more, um, I suppose, understanding and certainly from my perspective, it has really, really helped because I always had an interest working with children and mm. um, as we're going to touch on loss and grief and uh, it has been immensely helpful. So, Do you work with kids, Mike? I do. I work with um, more or less kind of pre-teen age and mm. uh lot of adolescence mm. so it's my first I suppose love within the work of psychotherapy um, I really really passionately believe that if children and adolescents are supported um, at the time of a difficulty in their lives it makes mm. an immense difference moving forward mm, definitely yeah, yeah what drew you to working with kids in the first place apart from having your own <laughs> Do you know, I don't... Or was that enough to put you off working with kids? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose once I started working and uh, trained as a psychotherapist, I became very aware when you're working with adults that inevitably, you know, the whole family are the uninvited guests within the counselling room. Mm. And you hear the <laughs> dilemmas expression. maybe being experienced 
you know, from the children and the younger people in the family. And I just thought, you know, it wouldn't it be great to have more training and more skills, I suppose, to be able to reach out and to work with children. And, you know, I'm a real believer in embracing the wildness within ourselves too. And, I, mm. you know, on some level, I actually haven't really grown up and I really, really enjoy <laughs> um, the honesty you get from children and teenagers yeah, yeah. and just that sense of, you know, if I don't like you, I don't like you and I say it to you. And you know, you, you very rarely get that. So mm. I love working with them. I get as much from, from the young people I work with as, as hopefully they get from me. Yeah. Yeah, I love, yeah, I work I work with teenagers. I don't work with the kids. And the reason for me is I really struggle with children when the child is not the problem. You know, it's the home environment or things like that. And it's a, it's a big struggle for me, kind of feeling a little bit powerless in that. Okay, and you know, yeah, I hear you. And that's interesting because I suppose from my perspective, when you're working with children, it's not necessarily... The problem, perhaps, at times. Mm. Um, I love. There's a phrase that I've come across regularly uh, over the last year, really, with the with the extra training with supervision, is listening to ignite. And I suppose when you're listening to the child and the dilemma mm. that they're experiencing, that then by listening and by being able to feedback, you're igniting a coping skill or a new perspective within them or a way of how how to manage. Um, and I just see it as immensely useful with the, with the children that Lovely. even children dealing with very, very, you know, serious and sad situations that we can't change. And we're not really there to change anyway. We're there yeah. to support. And to, yeah. But it, it can be incredibly powerful to see a child being able to find a new way of coping. Mm. Before before we get into the topic, Mags, what, what got you into this work? Tell us a little bit about, about your story and, and, and how you got to here. With grief. Mm. Well, just in therapy, with grief, yeah. all of that. Um, I worked for many years as a community welfare officer. Um, I worked in the homeless units and uh, traveller units in Dublin on the Keys, the old Charles Street, Mm. um, which I believe is a a spa uh, convenience store now. (laughs) But um, the homeless unit is still there, but just located in a different place. Um, Mm. So I worked a lot then with addictions. Um, You know, most of of our clients coming in were experiencing hugely challenging circumstances. And I suppose unknowns to myself, I was observing um, what it meant not to have support in your life, actually. Mm. Um, And then when my own eldest child, who's just 21 now, was born, I took a career break. And after a couple of years, I decided, you know, I'd like to do something else. And I thought about counselling and I went off and I did a night class. And before I knew it, I was sitting doing a degree. And before I knew that, I was doing... Uh, group facilitation training and before I knew that I was doing <laughs> children and loss um, and then I ended up doing a master's and now I've ended up doing the supervision training and in between there was bits and pieces as well but I suppose it's to just see the effects of support and what a listening ear and I know that can sound very cliched and very mm. fluffy mm. but in essence that's what we do we mm. provide a listening ear yes with good training and boundaries and appropriate professional ethics surrounding us but it's to be able to provide that space where somebody can come in talk about their difficulty and walk out perhaps feeling a little lighter yeah yeah so that's what brought me to it mm. um as 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 we met you were in the irish cancer society is that right um i worked locally with a cancer support cancer, um, yeah. organization um and i suppose i would have i suppose yes i would have witnessed a lot of um anticipatory grief I would Mm. have um, worked with a lot of grief but I think 
I suppose they're the big spaces and places that we do really recognize grief, whether it's anticipatory grief or a bereavement. But in actual fact, I really believe that in everyday life as, as therapists, we encounter grief. You know, often there's there's loss of hope. There's mm. never before, actually, you know, the last yeah. year. Yeah. We've seen grief and loss all around mm. us, our loss of freedom, our loss of choice, um, loss of structure, loss of routine, loss of role. Mm. So um, I, I, I did when I was studying with you, Alan, I, I was working with um, the cancer support. Um, but I suppose in addition to that, I, I really believe that loss is it's very, very um, much part and parcel of the work within therapy. And mm. I think sometimes we are inclined to look at the big losses and, and, um, and it's not to measure one loss against another, but we're more attuned, I suppose, to recognize the big losses. But the small, subtle, you know, loss of hope, loss of plans, that's there too. Yeah. Um, and that would equally interest me, actually. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things I've, you know, I've been um, so vocal about, I suppose, during lockdown and was that lock, that loss of hope that you know there was no light at the end of the tunnel for us it was everything was pushed out it was pushed out you know well we'll see how it goes you know people feeling that jesus is this is this ever going to end yeah i think it really ebbed and flowed didn't mm. it? that we mm. had you know okay with the next date we might have this back um i suppose it, it has been it has been quite a journey but when you look you know there has been um tremendous resilience demonstrated as well and mm. You know, people went back to old childhood hobbies and yeah. um, an awful lot. But equally, yes, it has been it has been very, very difficult, mm. and and loss was experienced globally on many levels. I think that the thing that struck me was, um, you know, with the first lockdown hit, every, everyone went back to basics. Mm. You know, everyone was baking. Everyone was. Yeah. It was just this total regression back to oh as I said to the simpler times or to something that's just been so deeply ingrained or something you know not being able to buy eggs in the shop and you know, it was crazy it, stuff it, it, but you know, it's fascinating because when you you know when you're what you're describing there is that people got, went back to basics mm. and, you know in times of loss we do regress we go mm. back mm. and usually we're and particularly as therapists we're trained to recognize regression from an unhelpful perspective that people yes. go back and feel lost and childlike but mm. In actual fact, that really demonstrated as well that people went back to the space where they knew, you know, well, what did my mother do when I was a child? Yes. Uh, she baked brown bread. And, mm. and it was interesting as well, actually, even with generational responses that, um, you know, I know my sons from watching me, I would they wouldn't have watched me bake as much as I would have watched my own mother bake. Yeah. Um, but I was impressed to see that they went back to reading because they would have read an awful lot as young children and then you know, left it aside a little. Mm. So it was incredible when you, we do um, regress mm. uh, what can happen, that we can actually tap into inner resources that we've forgotten were ever there. Yeah. Cammy, did you go back to anything? Did you regress? Did you go back to PlayStation 1 maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more just like every everything that people say they want to do but don't have enough time. So for example, Mike, you were saying with your kids going back to reading, they'd probably mm. say to their friends, oh, I'd love to read more, but I just don't think I have the time. Because they have other, they have other obligations, and then lockdown hidden. All they had was time, so they could do stuff that they said they didn't have time to do normally. Yeah, and I think that would have been the case. And that tapped into you know a very mindful piece because you know when you're sitting, lying on the bed or sitting in the armchair reading a book or whatever it is, you're totally in the zone. Mm. Mm. Um, 
And I suppose it's nice to kind of encounter that, even though we wouldn't go back and we wouldn't have chosen what we went through. But it is nice to recognise, you know, there was parts of um, me and my old older world, and maybe my younger world, mm. that, you know, I'd kind of like to keep keep going when we move forward now and hopefully mm. keep going out of lockdown. Mm. But yeah, it has been very interesting. Do you think, you think it was that regression back to whole foods or, you know, back to that like mama used to make kind of thing. Do you think there's a part of that? Just go back to comfort or something, Max? I think on a psychological perspective, it is very much in keeping with how we respond to loss. Mm. Um, always, you know, mm. when we're uncertain, when we're lost, we regress. But I do think this time it has been very interesting in that we do recognise the regression as being overwhelmed, not able to cope, feeling childlike. That's the typical responses that we recognise in grief um, mm in regression but this regression as well it's also you know there's always a balance that needs to be struck and we always need to look at the positive as well as the maybe not so helpful but just look at the regression that did happen even if it was back down to got to remember my mother making that brown bread I wonder how she did it I'll give Mm. it a try Mm. why did we do that was that to go back to a place of being comforted or feeling you know the world is okay Mm. Um, once we're here and once we can feel the heat of the oven and yeah. the smell of the bread, <laughs> on some level, we're actually comfortable and we're actually safe. Mm. So I think it's a very, very interesting piece as we move forward and we'll gather more data after this mm. to look and say, well, do you know, regression is not always necessarily devastating as yeah. we traditionally would have recognised it to be in loss. Mm. I think I thought it was interesting as well and something I had noticed after the, when the recession hit, when the crash hit, you know, everyone started upscaling. Everyone started allotments and keeping vegetables and, you know, making stuff out of pallets. And, you know, again, just that back to back to something simpler. Yeah. And, you know, it is. And it's back to, I suppose, maybe making my world safer for uh, what if it happens yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we would have heard that. You know, I remember elderly people years ago, you would have heard people saying, oh, it's very important to have enough money. Um put away so Mm. I can pay for funeral costs because that would have been a huge fear for elderly people years Mm. ago Mm. because you know from their history and their perspective it was um, a shameful place to be in not to be able to pay for for funeral costs so it's interesting when we do see how people prepare for the future or regress to the past and it's all really about making meaning of a situation and trying to stay as safe as we can. Yeah. So what one one of the things you touched on there a little bit already Mike was uh, anticipatory grief so grief for obviously for people that you know people that are tuning in to get more information on this uh, can you say a little bit around around what that is then yeah anticipatory grief is um it's a grief i suppose that you recognize a lot when people are facing um a diagnosis perhaps of a terminal illness mm. um equally you could have somebody who's dealing with a um a progressive illness yes. such as you know dementia or um, something like that. So it's it's knowing that the, there's going to be um, a loss coming, but that doesn't mean you're not losing the little things along the way. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, even actually on a very simple um, scale, watching your child do the leave insert this year and know he or she will be gone in September to college, you're almost anticipating mm-hmm. that loss. And even though there's an excitement and it's moving on and you know living their lives, you're anticipating that that loss is coming down the track. So it's terribly important to be able to to i suppose seek support and be supported during um that anticipatory grief because 
sometimes and what I witness, you know, at times is that people feel I don't have a right. Yes, uh, maybe to feel this way. I yeah. should be thankful for what's here now. Yeah. And actually, you know, people do have a right. And of course, everyone needs support and, and um, a space to be able to talk. And it can be a kind of a, a complicated grief afterwards if it's not recognised as, as uh, a grief in anticipation. Mm. Yeah, one of the things actually I have a couple of clients recently around the anticipatory grief and, and illness there, as you mentioned, around dementia and Alzheimer's and stuff like that. Um, you know, I remember a client saying to me, you know, I'm, I'm grieving twice. You know, you know, I'm grieving for the, the parent that I once knew that's gone, that that person is gone. And that anticipatory grief then of and this is the this is the path that they're quickly heading down toward, which would be which would be death. Yeah, and thankfully it's it is um I suppose it's it's a concept now that's understood and that's mm. spoken about more. But you know, when you do pose it in the beginning and even, you know, I would have managed I suppose people uh, who were working with, with um with people who were mm. dealing with anticipatory grief and mm. it's it's really amazing when you do mention it people know it because they see it but they may not have had the word for it yes and then you start it's kind of like buying a red car and suddenly you start seeing red cars Um, (laughs) suddenly then people can actually become very very attuned to recognizing it in other areas and Mm. so you know you know from my own perspective um i'm recognizing that you know i'm going from having uh three um sons here all year to having one son here in september so you're anticipating already God, what's that going to be like? You know, the house is going to be very quiet and mm. miss the laugh in the evenings and all that. So it's it's never to judge or to measure, I suppose, the, the grief. Grief is grief. But um, yeah, anticipated grief, it's something thankfully that people are starting to recognise more and more and supports are widely available for it now. Yeah, so we spoke we spoke on the anticipatory grief. Um, you also mentioned complicated grief there, Max. Yes, and again, after the year that has been... Um, I sense that this is something that we're going to need to know a little bit more about. Mm. Um, only about 2% of griefs um, present as complicated griefs. Um, and a complicated grief is a grief that a person is just really stuck in. That yeah. They haven't been able to process and move through. And I suppose when I say mo- move through, we don't move through our grieving in a linear fashion anyway. Mm. We literally mm. go in circles and that's appropriate. But I sense after the circumstances that a lot of people have experienced through COVID with small funerals, perhaps not being able to be with a loved one when they die, and not being able to get in to visit them in the hospital during their stay, I sense there's going to be um, a lot more complications within grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, may not necessarily present as a complicated grief, but I mm-hmm. do think that as therapists, um, we need to be more attuned for recognizing the signs of the complications that are going to be there from the very beginning and to support people very, very meaningfully through that. Mm. Yeah, com- complicated grief is now a recognized disorder, a diagnosable disorder for that grief where people are stuck and, you know, those persistent symptoms that, that just don't improve. It's very, very difficult for people. And quite often when people are in a complicated grief, and it's, it's, you know, as I say, it's only about 2%, but when people are in that complicated grief, um, I suppose you may be tempted to just look at the one loss and recognise why am I stuck. But inevitably, any loss in the here and now taps back into previous losses in our world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we all have little ruptures right through our life, some big, some small. But when we are grieving, we do regress and old hurts and old losses yeah. open up. So um, when there is a complicated grief, 
um, you know, a lot needs to be explored. But as I say, it's, it's a small um, number of people, thankfully, who do experience it. But I think there's going to be more complications um, with most griefs. Um, you know, I, I would have known a lot of my peers um, this year who lost parents. And mm. I wasn't at, wasn't at one funeral, you know. Yeah. So you have to be very mindful when you're meeting people on the street now to stop and to talk almost as if it has happened only last week because people haven't had the benefit of being comforted and being consoled mm. and having the opportunity to chat about the, the person who has died. So it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, You I mean, mentioned there sorry. with, um, with, with on, not being able to go to funerals, just with mm. the pandemic, do you think that has made it harder for people to cope with grief, say not having the the luxury of being able to go to a funeral or to talk to other people about it, or in some cases not even able to see the person who's died maybe a couple of months before it had happened? Oh, I think, Cameron, without a doubt, because um, we are, there's one thing that we're excellent at in this country and um, the whole ritual around a funeral. Mm. You know, we gather, we have a wake, we tell stories, we talk about the person, we will... We will laugh, we will cry, but it's just such a space where you're comforted, you're almost held by your community. Um, and that was gone. And, mm. um, you know, I have, like everybody in the country, have watched funerals online now, and it's just not there. It can't be there. So I suppose it is very important that whilst we have moved on and we just recognise, oh, you know, whoever's mom or dad has died, that's very sad, but that we actually remind ourselves now coming out of lockdown when we meet that person on the street to stop and acknowledge because it may have been six or seven months ago but in actual fact that person more than likely hasn't had that big outpouring of what it yeah. was like to know your mother or know your father or memories mm. you might have mm. had about them so it definitely has impacted grieving yes yeah i mean i've I even seen it myself my aunt died there a couple of weeks ago and like that not not able to attend a funeral and stuff like that but myself and uh, uh myself and my family would always show up well so i'll see you at the next wedding or the next funeral and you know but it was always that time where you'd get together and you'd you know yeah. you'd regale in stories oh geez do you remember the time he did this or do you remember, so the, do you remember time? the time absolutely yeah it is and do you think it'll give it'll lead to maybe a lack of closure for 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 some people around that then, Mags? Um, I suppose people are, you know, look at for some people it will, and some people I suppose it won't. It depends on mm. uh, some people might put in little rituals, um, mm. you know, and it's very important I suppose to, and that can be done that people can put in a, a little ritual and place themselves, or afterwards say, look, at we'll have a memorial service, or. I think the key is to acknowledge what you're missing in being able to say, um, I'm moving, I'm moving on. Not, I don't mean that by moving through grief in any mm, faster mm. way than you should do, but just to acknowledge what would it be to put something in place to give this person that ending? Or what do I need to feel that I have an ending put in place? And that's going to be very specific and people will need the space, I suppose, and allow themselves, just even ask themselves that question. What do I need to put an ending in place? Mm. That will be different for everybody. Mm. Yeah, but the, as I said, the collective piece has gone out of it. Yeah, yeah it, it may, well, may well be facilitated afterwards at a, an anniversary mm ceremony or something but mm. yeah it, it has for the time being and it has been very very difficult we do it so well though don't we we do a funeral well in ireland we do and that's our culture and we're yeah. used to it and i suppose you know what what has happened then and had to happen over the last while it's 
it's not who we are, you know. Yeah. Ultimately, it's not who we are. So it has been very strange for us. And even to not to be able to extend yourself and wrap your arms around somebody, it's it, it's quite strange for us, you know. Mm. We had a couple of questions uh, on the topic, Mags. So we had okay. Fraser on a couple of weeks ago. Fraser has a question for us. Um, I think this is, this is one that uh, I can certainly relate to in a certain way. What's the best way to be there for someone who has recently lost someone? Uh, the best way for any of us to be there for anyone, I suppose, is just to sit and bear witness to their pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that can, it's again, just to be there. Be there. <laughs> to physically be there. Yeah, don't have a prescription in your mind, and mm. not, don't be afraid to ask the person. I'm, you know, what would you like from me? And if the person doesn't know, you just say, "I'm here." Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I think for for myself, certainly in the early work, uh, I think I struggled with a lot of grief and you know breakups as well as 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 a grieving process, because I always felt a kind of powerlessness in it. You know, knowing that she's there's nothing I can do. Uh, but I think as I've gone along, it's certainly learning that my being is enough yeah. Yeah. to just be here and as I say witness that grief and to acknowledge you know you know I feel I feel powerless in this I can only imagine how you feel and um, what do you need from me and as, as you've said there you know just to witness that experience and to to validate it and hold that space for someone that's it's powerful you know mm, oh, 100% I, I know you know obviously it's it's um, there has to be a lot more work <coughs> at times you know put in place as well but there's very few places and spaces in our world where we can sit and really express exactly what's happening for us internally and have somebody to sit there and not to tell us, you know, don't upset yourself or ah, sure, put on the kettle, just to sit yeah. and witness your pain. It's terrifically powerful. Yeah. Just to go further on that, Mags, what if it's the case if, say, somebody doesn't want to talk about it or they're one of those people that tend to bottle up their feelings? What, what would you suggest in going about it that way? Well, I suppose if that was, I'll talk from a personal perspective, if you recognize that somebody is not willing to talk, you know, sometimes it's the best thing in the world is to name that and yeah. say, look, I sense you're not comfortable in talking, but I'm here and go for a walk in silence. <clears throat> uh, we can, you know, sometimes even I would say to people, have you tried to go for a massage or something? Mm. <clears throat> and that's thankfully is coming back now. Sometimes we hold an awful lot of our stress in our bodies and by being so tight in your body, you literally can't articulate what's going on. And we're all different. And that's the beauty of being human. But uh, some people do find it very, very hard to voice their pain. And that can come from fear as well. I'm afraid if I start, I won't stop. Yeah. 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 And, and again, it's just to be able to say that, look, whatever, whatever you want to say or don't want to say, that's perfect. But I am here for you. And whatever works for you is fine. Yeah. Um, and it's to give the person that permission almost it's okay to be silent and then you will find people start to just feel a little safer in, in their grief and maybe not as scared of it and it will start to come out so you think the most important thing would just be to give them company and kind of show them that they're not alone in it even if it's the case they don't want to speak about it yeah because we grieve the way we live not everyone is a talker um, and just to be able to sit with somebody in silence um, you know opposite ends of a table with a cup of tea in each hand each person have and just to sit there and say I'm here for you I'm absolutely here for you whatever works for you is perfect for me mm. because we we kind of I think assume that everybody's going to start talking but that's not true in everyday life and we grieve the way we live if we're somebody who kind of goes into ourselves when we're stressed in ordinary times we're going to do that with the volume turned up when we're grieving <laughs> If we're somebody who talks constantly about our dilemmas, mm -hmm. 
we're going to do that with the volume turned up in our grieving. Where we recognize what a complicated or maybe a difficult grief is if somebody becomes very different to how they are ordinarily. You see that a lot with children. If you have a child who's quiet and, you know, gets on with things and is chatty and the next thing they become very, very um, withdrawn and uh, angry um, and just won't lead in their drive, say to people, you know, that that child then could do with support and not always formal support. It's just to sit down and address what's going on. So if we change in nature to who we are ordinarily, that's an indicator at times that we do need support. But uh, not everyone is a talker. Yeah, yeah. Probably what you're talking a little bit about there, Cam, is uh, what can be what's called inhibited grief, where, you know, people just turn their attention to other things. They may throw themselves into the job more, you know, working themselves to exhaustion. Um, and because that inability to deal with it or the avoidance of, of, of trying to deal with it, um, but that can then lead to what's called then delayed grief. Um, where and I've I've seen this in client work people coming in 20, 30 years later you know mm. grieving grieving to death of someone and I think like you said there earlier mags of being set off by another loss being triggered by something else yeah and and um, I I recognise particularly with working with um, young people as well I recognise that you know it's very very difficult at times for a parent perhaps who loses their partner and is trying to rear children mm. sometimes that parent and you see it and particularly years ago when there may not have been the awareness and the supports that there are now that parent will say to you maybe 20 years later or 25 years later if i had really grieved the way i should have grieved then the kids would not have been looked after yeah yeah and and that can sometimes have an impact on on delaying the grief and you know you can see completely the rationale for it mm. Mm. Well, what I would see, uh, and probably generally speaking, but maybe a little bit more common with the men is you kind of self-medicate around the grief and it's turned into drink and drugs. And, you know, then whether it is 10, 15 years later when the when the sober up, um, they just they're just hit with this kind of whammy of as if the, 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 the death had just happened. You know, that's. It, it was never processed. It was never, the emotion was never felt because anytime those unpleasant feelings were there, it was turned to a drink or turned to a drug to, as, as a coping strategy. And then when that was taken away, it, it all comes back fresh. I think we've come in lo- an awful long way, um, I suppose, in this country that it is wonderful that we can. But number one, that there's so many resources out there. I know there'll mm. always be the flip side that people say there's not enough. But equally, when we look at where we have come from, Mm. Um, there's a huge number of resources out there. And I think by and large, thankfully, there's always going to be um, people who do get stuck and are lost in, in, in a space. But um, by and large, um, I've seen that people, you know, they're they're incredibly open um, about where they're at with grief. And usually um, when you do, I, I'm fascinated as well. And, and you probably recognize it. I'm fascinated by attachments and grief. Mm. that how we attach to loss is very very similar to how we attach to other relationships in our life and yeah. you know if it, it's um if we are a little bit more insecure about facing a new challenge or a new change in our lives um again that can lead into shying away from it or trying to distract ourselves from it so it's um again it look at we grieve the way we live it's an individual response mm. yeah and i think maybe you know that kind of as you, as you touched on there mike probably sums up grief as 
you know, anything that we lose that we have a strong emotional connection to. Um, Peter Peter mentioned last week of uh, someone he knew that went to uh, for a pet uh, grieving a specialist yeah. in pet grieving, and you know people dismiss those kind of things as master um, look it was only a fucking dog or sure you know she can get a new cat or anything like that, and that's probably touching a little bit on uh, what what would be referred to as disenfranchised grief. Um, and that yeah. can be a job that can be I mean a simple simple example of that would be for myself James my son James his his uh, maternal grandmother died and she had been a great mediator after after the breakup with his mom and I was at the funeral and it was a huge huge loss for me this was mm. this was someone I cared an awful lot about but I went through it on my own you know kind of no one recognised that I was there no one recognised um, the loss that I had experienced. Um, yeah, the disenfranchised grief is it's again and again it's becoming more um, familiar in everyday language, but it's very very important for um, mm. people to be able to even because sometimes people don't even witness their own grief. Mm. Mm. You know, they recognise that it's not witnessed externally, but then they may diminish that grief within themselves. And yeah. Yes. It's very, very important for people, again, to be given a space to be able to say, well, what did this relationship mean to you and how are you grieving this person? And it's interesting, you know, you're mentioning pets as well. And mm. in, in the States, there's, um, you know, studies to show that a lot of elderly people who are grieving the loss of a pet would seek therapy, even though they'd never have sought therapy for the loss of spouses or friends oh. You know, so mm. it's, it just shows you what that attachment to the pet, that the pet may have been bought at a time or got at a time that maybe a partner died or have a bit of noise in the house or a bit of company. And this, you know, pet, even though the pet is loved for who they, what they are or who they are themselves, but they're also um, filling that void as well. And then the loss of the pet happens and it taps back into all the previous losses that maybe support wasn't necessarily needed for. At yes. The time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, in, with, under the, and probably a little bit um, more severe, I suppose, or um, perhaps not spoken about could be in terms of grief of, you know, people who may be homosexual, they might lose a partner, that individual might not be out of the closet, you know, the, the opportunity to, to grieve that individual, um, you know, that, that can be a, a huge factor for people as well, where no one knows. You know, and, and, and that can't be shown and that that's that's buried. Yeah, look, I think with any grief, we are when our grief is witnessed, there's support usually. And mm. It's great when there is usually support around us. But time and time again, uh, we, ultimately, we need to go back with the relationship with ourselves. Mm. And how do we express our own grief? How do we respect our own grief? How do we take care of ourselves during our grief? How are we kind to ourselves in our grief? Um, and it's very, very important that people have the opportunity to be able to recognize I need to be able to express and ask for what I need in my grief, mm. uh, whatever the situation. But the, the again, I'm going back to the uh, time and time again, I hear people saying, I never knew what you were talking about when the dog died until I lost my own. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as regards other relationships, you know, again, um, we have come an awful long way in that people are, there's, I suppose there's a lot of categories now identified within mm. different mm. different griefs. Um, and that's wonderful that people usually have access to supports. 
Yeah. But if there's one thing after today, I would say we grieve the way we live. Yeah. If we have a question from Liam, um, mm. Mags, uh, I know all grief is hard, but what would you say to people suffering grief from suicide? Um, Do you think the same yeah. the same as what you've said? Do you think that applies across the I board? Think, you know, well, I think there's an extra layer. I suppose mm. we, uh, when we grieve somebody um, who has died by suicide, we grieve the person and we grieve the why. Yes. Um, and we, I don't like using the word acceptance with grief because you know but we do we learn to accommodate a loss and Mm. that's coming out after a grieving process we accommodate that loss in our worlds we move forward having accommodated the loss but i don't think acceptance is 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 usually the word to use but i think there's an extra accommodation that's required in um, a loss through suicide and that you're grieving the why as well as the person and very very often uh, you know, we we don't know the why, and we'll never yeah. know the why. Yeah. And um, it's it, that's that's um, that's an extra layer, and that's a difficult one uh, for people because inevitably, um, you know, there's there's questioning and there's wondering, and that bargaining piece in grief. Yeah. Anyway, if only I wonder what if that yeah. is very much heightened in loss through suicide. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think one of the common things that comes along with that, and I think for you know the thing that I would see in a lot of client work is that what people really struggle with is is the anger that comes with grief and you know being afraid to express that anger yeah and it's part and parcel and Mm. um, it's again I think psychoeducation is hugely important um, for somebody who's grieving because we've all grieved in our lives but we might not necessarily be aware of the stages we're going through and when you do break it down and normalize the feelings that the person is going through you know that these feelings are unique to them and you're honoring their unique experience. But there is um, stages that we will visit and revisit and revisit. And yeah, absolutely. Anger is is one of them. And um, it's just how do we express that? And again, going back to how we live, if somebody is very uncomfortable with the emotion of anger or is afraid of anger, mm. that becomes much more difficult for that person to be able to express. And it's terribly important then to be able to sit with that piece and say, well, what does anger mean to you ordinarily? Mm. And how might you judge somebody else or how might you judge yourself when you're trying to express that anger? Mm. But it's, it's very much part of grieving, yes. Yeah. I feel like to go back on the suicide and to link in when you're talking about anger, mm-hmm. I think one of the the bigger issues people struggle with when it comes to dealing with suicide is that they straight away try to think about why the person who committed suicide did it. And it kind of adds an extra layer on top of dealing with grief that they're trying to understand the other person's thought process. And maybe there's a, they're considering a hint of selfishness from the other person because they took themselves out of this person's life Mm -hmm. and it adds on top. So it adds a layer of anger on top of the grief as well. I think, yeah, it taps into the why. It's yeah. just the questioning. But equally, that that anger can be tapped into in, you know, if you had somebody who died in a car crash, uh, you know, why why were they passing that point of the road at that particular time that they met, whatever? Um, why did that person, uh, you know, uh, get a diagnosis of cancer when other people don't? Mm-hmm. Um, anger is going to be part and parcel of grief. But yeah, Cameron, I, I hear you. There is, and it is that extra layer of your 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 grieving the why as well as the person when a person dies by suicide yes mm. mags in 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 all your in all your years of experience and i remember a couple of things you would have mentioned in in college which i taught were um lovely things of how you, you would recommend to people to kind of 
honor or remember the the the, the deceased in a particular way uh, was it a memory box or something like that i think you'd mentioned before or yeah and i suppose again you know because they're it's it's working with children and to be a mm. very well known um intervention if you like but um you know for adults as well mm. just to have you know you can make memory jars um you could have yeah a memory box um i find um as a therapist i would have found that sometimes you'd have to put your own ritual in place when you've worked with people particularly people who would have um um you might have been working through terminal illness you know to have a little ritual to be able to kind of for yourself say mm. well look at this is what this person taught me actually um, and to honor that that person. Um, but the memory boxes or the memory jars are, yeah, they're fantastic. And actually, I used to only use those in grief work up to a number of years ago. And now I use them a lot with um, children leaving school, you know, coming mm. to the end of their secondary mm. school. Particularly, actually, this year, because, again, no more than the endings with the ultimate ending, the ending of life. But, you know, the endings of secondary school, there was no yeah. rituals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was nice for... Um, some uh, pieces of work to be able to faci- be facilitated around providing a memory jar and maybe capturing the memories in the jar and you have that then to move forward and to reflect back on because ultimately at the end of of a grieving and a change in your life um a smile eventually happens before a tear eventually mm-hmm. eventually and it's nice to be able to reflect upon you know the memories as well of the person but that does take a time it's not just something that you will work uh, straight away um, but yeah memory jars can be lovely but they're as i say they're widely used um and uh, the irish uh, hospice foundation uh, have great resources and the irish childhood bereavement network have fantastic resources and uh, they would have all things like that and winston's wish actually in england would be another organization that would be very very uh, creative in their interventions with children mm. So just going back to the disenfranchised grief and, you know, these things that may not get a lot of support for people or acceptance from society. Um, a lot of things I would see in a lot of the female clients that I work with would be miscarriages mm-hmm. as, you know, coming under that umbrella of this of disenfranchised grief. Yeah, it can happen. Absolutely. Um, I see in hospitals now um, there is fantastic resources and there's very often a designated uh, nurse on, mm. the, on the ward or the unit um, and I know in my own um, locality there would be um, a ceremony every year actually mm. uh, for, for parents who would have lost um, uh, babies through either miscarriage or, or stillborn or mm. very, uh, shortly after birth but um, yes of course there's going to be people who will experience uh, and it's a complicated grief because mm. maybe you know it's 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 held for a while and then it's expressed later mm. um, but again it all comes back very very often to um we grieve the way we live and we have to meet each individual where they're at and to be able to just support them at at, at the place they're at uh, in coming to terms with their loss yeah I wanted to talk, you, you touched on it earlier about people dealing with grief and then having, or throwing themselves deeper into their work. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of the two sides I see when it comes to grief and work and you hold them side by side is people either need to step away and they may struggle to get back into their career or back into their job. Or like you said, they throw themselves deeper into it. Would you have any thoughts on that, Mags, and just how that kind of dynamic works? Yeah, look, I suppose... Um people put we all like we're people we all put coping skills in place 
and um, some people will want to become very, very busy and almost distract themselves from a difficulty. Other people will want to really sit into it immediately and process. Um, very, very important, I suppose, as therapists that we don't prescribe or tell people how you do it or how you don't. Mm. But it's it's interesting and it can be very helpful just to observe and to gather, you know, information from, from somebody and how are you coping and how are you sleeping and how are you working and how are you taking time out? Um, and to just be able to then recognize, I suppose, what's not working for the person. And more importantly, to be able to talk to the person and see what is not working for you. Because eventually when people do throw themselves into work, um, you eventually just have to stop because it's it's unsustainable. You become too tired. Mm. Um, equally, if people are sitting with the grief all the time and there's no break, there's just no break at all, even to meet somebody for a coffee or go for mm. a walk, that can't be sustained either. So it's just really important to just gather the information from the grieving person and then to recognize what's not working here or what might be a little bit more supportive for you, what might be a little bit more helpful for you. But um, people people respond the way they do, and that has to be respected. But it's just to try and, I suppose, present them with options um, or different perspectives on how it might be carried a little bit more lightly when you're trying to work through a loss. So that was Straight Talking Grief. A huge thanks to Mags Bone for sharing her wealth of experience and some, some great advice for anyone. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do so on all of the social media channels. You can get us on Twitter, str 8 Pod. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram as well. If you've got a story to tell, if it's a topic you'd like to have us cover, if there's some feedback you'd like to give us, we welcome it all. You can do that by checking out the website, stmhpodcast.com, and our email address is hello at stmhpodcast.com. Big shout out to Fiona Bryan for the podcast music. You're going to hear it in a couple of minutes. He knocked up the beat there. P dropped in the sample. Some good stuff. P tells me last week that Fiona is now professional producer. This is what he's doing full time. We're delighted. Obviously, it's off the back of our um, giving him that coverage on the podcast. Nothing got to do with his <laughs> talent at all. So you're welcome, Fiona. Huge shout out as well to Aideen. She gave us a dig out with the social media graphics in the past. At this point of the show, this is where we like to leave the last word. We like to give these words of wisdom uh words of inspiration life lessons learned mags is going to do that for us this week but in the meantime folks look after yourselves and look after each other i regularly say to people and i say to myself um you know treat yourself like a good friend in whatever situation you're in in life and whether we're grieving or if we're going through you know a time of anxiety or a time of change in our lives if we treated ourselves like we treat others, if they were in that situation, we'd probably be an awful lot kinder to ourselves. So I think wherever we're at, at whatever stage in life, treat yourself like a good friend. Despite all the interventions and all the theories and all the work, um, kindness, <laughs> we can't go too far without it. Yeah. So be kind. Let's be kind to ourselves. It makes life not any easier, but it makes the dilemmas that we encounter just a little bit easier to negotiate if we treat ourselves like a good friend. Mental health. Mental health. Mental health. The mind is a terrible.